Welcome to The Bulb, a podcast shedding light on gendered violence. In each edition, we'll explore aspects of this violence. What is thought about it, what we know about it, or what is yet to be revealed. The Bulb is a podcast series brought to you by the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Thank you for joining us as we share knowledge to improve the lives of women and their children. American activist Gloria Steinem described a feminist as anyone who recognises the equality and full humanity of women and men. In this episode of The Bulb, you'll hear Dr Heather Lovett and Pauline Woodbridge OAM. This podcast was recorded under naturalistic conditions, but despite fluctuating audio quality, listeners will learn much from the rich voice and life of Queensland's own activist and feminist, Pauline. Hello, I'm Heather Lovett. I'm the director of the Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research at CQ University Australia. It's my privilege to introduce a segment with Pauline Woodridge, who has recently retired from a formal role with the Domestic and Family Violence Services in Townsville. But that's not where it starts. It starts well before. And in this segment, Pauline takes us through that journey of connections with multiple communities and learning through her life. I hope you enjoy as much as we've enjoyed bringing this to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for that, Heather. And I guess it starts with being born, doesn't it? But I might skip over a lot of that part. Um, I did grow up in a family of... um, uh, I actually grew up in a shop. And so my parents ran the shop and the kitchen of the house was behind the shop. And so even as a child, we were all, and myself and my sister, we were involved in the shop. When the doorbell rang, even at a very young age, we would go to the door to see who the customer was because they were usually just, you know, the neighbourhood people. Um, One of the family stories is that I made my first sale aged four when I sold um, a, a... block of violet chocolate for threepence, which um, was way underpriced and they got quite a bargain. But um, that was a family story, I don't remember that. Um, my, um, my mother kept um, added to the family with a, another brother and, um, and a, a brother who was what was called a blue baby in those days who later died. So um, I must say my parents were were very supportive of us as kids and we had a very free life. I think the beauty about growing up in that time, that late 1940s and 50s, was that that as children we had a very free life and with my parents so involved with the shop, we were largely unattended in the sense of being able to make our own games and do our own things and be around the neighbourhood and in and out of everybody else's houses, which was now often looked back as a, as a very wonderful natural childhood, a bit different from today. Um, my, um, my mother also later uh, was ho- went to hospital to have um, a baby, a little girl, and um, in the 50s and she contracted Golden Staff in the hospital and subsequently didn't return from the hospital. She died there. That uh, baby was um, adopted and taken away by family in another state and um, 
the outcome of all of that was that my father really was, I think, so shocked at the loss of his wife. Um, and he had, there was these children and there was still the business that he actually withdrew an awful lot. And, um, and so again, um, I was 12 at the time and my, my sister and I took on the care of my two-year-old uh, brother and uh, we just loaded him onto the back of the bike and off we went on a Saturday and a Sunday returning at dark. Um, so that was pretty much uh, where we were in that early part of my life. Also, the time that we... We lived in a time where the expectation of women was that they would get married and have children. That was a very strong pressure. And I do remember my father giving me messages about, well, you won't... I was quite bright. I was actually in the top classes at, unit, at uh, high school, but unfortunately, uh, my mother died in that period. And it's funny to look back now and think, well, my grades or, you know, my class ability all slid and no one noticed, you know. Uh, whereas nowadays I think it would be very different. But um, but he always said, um, well, you just get married and have kids. You don't need, you, you know, just you just need a few jobs to keep you going and uh, you certainly won't be going to university sort of thing. Um, but on the, uh, and although that might sound harsh, on the other hand, he really supported my reading. And um, I think around the time when I was about 11 or 12, um, he w was able to get me into the adult library because I'd read everything in the children's <laughs> library, really, and um, and so I had access to books in the in the adult library. And and I remember my big interest was the Southern Ocean, whaling, the clipper ships, the grain ship race, the great grain ship races, all of that sort of adventuring and dairy do type of um, books that I remember reading, but. Um, and so, it, so I was 18 when I met my husband and got married. So that was quite normal, but that doesn't seem like that now, does it? When I think of my 18-year-old granddaughter, I can't imagine that she would be anywhere near interested or mature enough to marry. But anyway, um, I married my husband, who was a 10-pound pom. He'd come to Australia um, a couple of years before, and we'd worked in the same cap carpet factory and that's where we met and that's a pretty typical story isn't it marrying a work colleague and um, so I was working in a factory yes. Was there anything exposed that sounds like to community some of the hardship loss um, so much already and you were an avid reader clearly so you're now in a yeah, and Heather, you've just raised an issue about that about community, and I hadn't made that connection before. But that was a time in our street because we were in the corner shop. We were a really important hub in the community, and and as I said, as kids, we were in and out of the shop and used to bring the papers in and, and put the new magazine. You know, we did things in the shop, and um, and. Uh, that was a time when many of the post-war immigrants were coming to Australia and in, they came to our street. Most of them had no English, they were men, and they were working really hard to get their families over with them as well. And my dad spoke many languages and so they would come up to the shop with, um, with their paperwork and he would translate it for them and help them with things and help them sign off mortgages. And they were able to buy up a lot of shops, a lot of houses further down the street. And because of that connection with my father, we were very welcomed into those houses. So I was actually 
after uh, growing up with um, boiled spaghetti with um, tomato sauce and cheddar cheese, I was suddenly exposed to the real Italian cooking. And so, and lots and lots of cheap pulling and, and so on. And so, yes, I was exposed to that, those very early um, families and uh, their, their way of life, I guess, as they assimilated into the Australian way of life. So, yeah, I hadn't made that connection before about uh, that experience. But, um, yes, so um, I married uh, my husband and he actually uh, worked at International Harvester, which is now gone, and um, he, the, the proving ground where he worked was in the bush outside Anglesey, and so we moved to Anglesey, which was quite isolated, really, and um, I lived in a house that was surrounded by bush, very beautiful. We had um, uh, wombats in the backyard, for example, kangaroos going by. I, I attempted to grow plants, uh, grow a veggie garden, but that was hopeless with kangaroos. They just ate everything as soon as it came up. Um, and again, that was a very small community and young, and young women, I had a job at the local shop but uh, in the summer, in the winter there was no one there much but in summer the place all swelled with, with visitors. Um, the, um, and I had my first child there and that was quite an isolating experience because I didn't have anybody but I did have um, is it Dr. Spock? Is that the right word? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I had the book in this hand and the baby in this hand and figured out how to, to try to raise this child out in the bush. But there was other young mothers in the community too and so we were able to, um, to you know, form friendships and support each other at the same time. So I, I had two children while we were living down there and um, had to walk everywhere. So it was a really healthy life when you look back. It, you know, I don't want it to sound like it was a hardship. It wasn't. We would load the babies in the pram, walk down Point Road night, go to the shops, push the prams back up the hill with the potatoes and the Woman's Weekly and the milk and so on. Um, so it would have, you know, kept you fit. But one of the early actions that I was involved in, isn't it amazing to think of the connections, was that the local... Uh, there was no local kindy, and so there was a group of people who got together to say we wanted a kindy in the town. And yeah, the building, so the education department we were going to provide the building, but the community had to provide the teacher, which meant that you had to have money. And so we were doing enormous fundraisings to, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, when you eat, what's it called, when you eat your, your um, your entree in this house, progressive dinners. That was the fashion at that time. And we'd all cook up our, and, and have people come to our place and eat the entree or the main course or the sweets and so on as you go from place to place. Not a lot of alcohol, but it was obviously between the drink driving laws. And um, so we were able to raise money dollar for dollar to be able to employ a teacher. The other thing that occurred was that this was the time when you did your teacher's training, you had to spend time out of the city in a rural area and so we had so I was involved in that kindy my eldest daughter went there um, you know you do all of that voluntary work that you do to keep a kindy going kept raising funds so we could pay the teacher um, actually act as a teacher's aide on, on rostered days and so on so I, I hadn't thought about that as activism before but it certainly was
I suppose I was about 21, 22, 23 in that period. Very young. Very young, yeah. Starting rent business. <laughs> yes. Um, then my husband moved to work for CSIRO, Commonwealth. He, so he became a Commonwealth public servant. And that brought all sorts of um, benefits in, and difficulties in that we moved. He would be um, transferred to various divisions. So it meant that we lived in a lot of different places, and such as, uh, for example, uh, Griffith in the middle of New South Wales in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area. And so every, everywhere you go, you learn a lot. I learned about irrigation and how important that was and what was being grown in that community. And again, um, um, my daughter went to, or the two daughters by then, went to the very tiny little country school, which was a heck of a long walk in all weathers to take the walk the kids to school and walk them back again. Um, but one of the delights was that there was a lot of market gardens there and so I would walk, after, walk back from school uh, and the market gardener might have been in his garden. He'd say, you want carrot? He'd go, okay, and out of the soil would come this beautiful fresh carrots and cabbage and and we lived on an orchard that had apples and oranges and pears. And so that ability to have fresh fruit and to make the most of what was around you, again, still sits with me now. It's amazing not I hadn't made that connection before. But that was an amazing time. And, you've, you know, I, for people, I hope you do get to have the experience of a pear warmed in the sun and juicy straight off the tree. It's an amazing <laughs> experience. So um, we also lived, we, um, we moved to Perth and lived in a city. And so that was, um, again, a whole new experience, learning to drive in a big city, because everywhere I'd been till then had been small. Um, and, uh, oh, actually, while we were in Griffith, I had my third child in Griffith Hospital. And that was an adventure, because I developed um, um, appendicitis, which I'd never had before, and so I, when I was three months pregnant, I was operated on to remove my appendix, so things were a bit sore for quite a long time. Anyway, he, he's a lovely kid and lives in Perth, but we were moved to Perth as part of CSIRO, and that was a huge train journey, and in those days, they used to send you business class, and so we were in the front of the train and the, with the kids and the butler who brought you your morning cups of tea. It was the most wonderful experience to a, a mother. Oh, I don't mean to jump around so much, but all during that pregnancy, I worked at night. So I cared for the children in the daytime and worked at night in a hamburger shop next door to the pub. And that was the time with the 10, 10 o'clock kick out. And all the men who'd been drinking madly um, would come next door to get their hamburger, <laughs> and I was had more. I uh, had you know I had pregnancy sickness, morning sickness, as they called it, in the middle of the night, flipping hamburgers for all these men so that they could try to sober up a bit before they went home. So I did that for quite a long time during that pregnancy, and um, but anyway, it wasn't long after that that we moved to Perth, and that was Perth's a glorious city. And I really responded to Perth um, in, and to Western Australia because I'm left-handed and I think the sun going down into the sea makes so much sense to me. And I really glorified in that climate there. I really loved it. And, then, um, and so I started a babysitting business. I bought a babysitting business where I would roster women into, um, into going into people's homes to babysit. 
And I did that for a little while. And that was a business that I had to borrow money for. I had to borrow $1,000 from the bank. And so that was a time for women who were not, couldn't operate without their husband's permission or, you know, their husband had to sign for them and all that sort of thing. But that was that time and they did lend me that $1,000 and it's, I repaid. It was, and a lot of business stuff. Luckily, no bass at that time. And um, and so one day, my husband rang me up and said, um, how do you feel about moving north? And I went, moving north where? You know, in WA. And he said, have you got get a map out? And so he, he said, run your finger up the coast. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Now go across to the Northern Territory border. How do you feel about a transfer to Kununurra? Like, what? <laughs> Take all the family there. Yes, it was quite exciting, actually. And really, in lots of ways, I found an awful lot about out, uh, an awful lot about myself in Kununurra, because the kids were a little bit older. I was in my thirties, yeah, and um, and in fact, I thought thirty-four was a turning point for me in lots of ways, because that was when we were in Kununurra. It was outback life. I um, I had uh, I had horses again had the book on how to break a horse in and had the horse and achieved all of that. Um, I had uh, friends there. It was a great social life there. We lived uh, remotely from Kununurra. We lived on the um, Kimberley Research Station, which was part of the Durack properties. And uh, so, you know, the whole Durack story of the opening up of the Kimberley and so on. Such an adventure, such a wonderful time. Um, I had work in town, and so I worked at a at a, um, a, a store that provided people to outback um, clothing mostly, but everything that anybody needed in the outback. And they had um, a truck that went out to all the stations. And so when I first started work with them, I was working in the shop, but then I shifted over into the warehouse where I would do all the ordering of everything that the truck needed to take out. And that meant that I got to travel. I got to go to places like Adelaide to visit all the clothing factories to place orders of the kind of clothing that we wanted for the Aboriginal women in the communities because there was, you know, it needed to be high around the neck, covered up arms, decent length and so on, and so and decent material, decent price as well. So that was a huge adventure. And so it started off with um, the, the, the whole organisation was women. I didn't have a high awareness of lesbian women at that stage, but that was all women, all of whom were, um, were um, yeah, in same-sex relationships, some of them, some of them were single and so on. And so that was just, again, a whole lot of learning. But it was, all the it was also the time when the... Um, there was going to be an election and there was a lot of activity around making sure that people in the communities got to vote. Most of them could only put a cross against their voting papers, but they had a right to vote. And the organisation I was working with um, used their vehicles to go and pick women up and bring them into the voting, bring pe pick people up, Aboriginal people mostly, up and bringing them into the vo polling station so that they could vote. You know, so it was such an activist time really, when you look back. And, um, you wouldn't have thought about it as activism. No, didn't have that wording, didn't have that concept. But one of the jobs that I had, because I ran the warehouse, there was a Ronio machine, and the group used to put out newsletters 
with um, a lot of, uh, you know, environmental, left politics, women's politics and everything in it. And every now and then there would actually be a raid and I would get a... I'm, again, I don't... Unfortunately, I don't have the underpinnings of it all, just the actions, but I would get a phone call, quick, there's a raid happening, hide the machine, hide all the papers and everything. So I would hide them all in the shed and then the raid would happen and there'd be a bit of a cursory search and and then they'd go away again and then everything would be gotten out again. But I was never really part of that part of the activism. But the Butte part of the life for me was that the women who were out on the in the huge big Bedford truck with big doors that opened up and the shelves all came out and it was all packed, big uh, racks came out with clothes hanging on them. It was such a clever way of uh, packing everything up. And the... Um, uh, and they would ring in and say, OK, we're moving on. They would have to stop in the middle of the road. One of the women would get out and put a, an antenna up in a tree to be able to make the phone call. You know, there was no sophisticated uh, um, things in those days. It's and amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. We, and even just filming you today, <laughs> it is so different. It's so different, it is. And uh, the... Um, and so they would say to me, we need this and we need that and the other, and I would pack it all up and organise for one of the, to hire one of the small planes at the airport and, um, and then drive the ute out there, load the little plane with the help of the pilot. The pilot and I would hop in the plane and we would go off uh, to meet wherever the, wherever the truck was. And so um, usually what happened was that the, uh, we'd unload the truck, put it, uh, unload the plane, put it all in the truck. Uh, usually it was at a station, so you would go into the station house and you would meet the people and have a cup of tea and so on. The truck had was completely self-sufficient, um, uh, so it had its own uh, beds, um, you know, fold-out beds and um, and tarps and, and uh, blankets and everything that you needed tea and coffee and so on, but there was no shower or anything like that. And one of the skills you learn is to how to wash, how to clean your teeth and wash yourself in a pannikin of water that you usually got out of a ditch or something. You know. <laughs> one of the jobs you had to learn. But, um, and you slept out, which I just loved, under those stars. It was just wonderful. So the pilot would wait and um, uh, the women who were on the truck, their dirty clothes would go back with the pilot, back to the town. Any uh, mail would come from the town out to them so that they got their mail. Um, we did carry money so that money was sorted out, like either it was either the float was either replenished or excess money was sent back for safety. Um, goods would be restocked in the shop. Uh, and then one, who, whichever one of the workers has been out there for long, for, for you know, 10 days or 14 days, she would go back with the pilot and I would fill in. So I got to be out in the bush for periods of time, like maybe eight or seven or eight days, not the long trips, because I had the kids at home, but my husband was there. We lived and worked, he worked and we lived on the same station. So the kids, he would get the kids ready for school, they would go to school in the school bus, he would be at work, they would come back from on the school bus, go and see him, you know, play with the neighbourhood kids. It all worked. You know, everyone looked after everyone else's kids. It was a wonderful experience. 
And um, yeah, and so then I had this fantastic bush experience. And just going into the Aboriginal communities, one of the things I did learn was the incredible generosity and gentleness of Aboriginal people in their communities. It was just amazing. And um, to be able to provide them with the clothes that they needed. Now, this organisation was really ethical. And so at that time, everybody got checks you know, out in the bush in the middle of nowhere, they would all get their payments by cheque. And so one of the functions that we did was change their cheques for them. There was a lot of shonky behaviour, uh, you know, out there in the bush. And uh, taxi drivers would take people's cheque and not give them change, you know, all that sort of thing. And most of the people could only sign their cheques with a cross. But the women who were out on the truck all the time, they knew who was who. So they would, you know, they would be confident that that was that person's cheque and we would change the cheques. So people would buy some things, but they always got their change. We were, it was part of my training to work for them was that I had to be absolutely ethical about never you know, damaging anybody, never doing anything wrong, never carrying gossip because an important role that we did play was to take news from this station to that station. So it might be like at this station they would say, oh, you dropped into Mabel Downs, didn't you? Which doesn't exist now, it's a diamond mine. Um, how is, what's her name and the new baby? How is that all going? Or, you know, news about, are they mustering yet? So you did. That was one of our jobs was to carry that news. So can you imagine the learning that I had for um, being able to be respectful and uh, to learn admiration for Aboriginal people in their communities, to be wary of the dogs, <laughs> to um, be ethical and careful about what you did and how you presented yourself, the way that you um, you, try, you supported the, commun the network of isolated people, never causing damage, you know, by gossiping or saying wrong things and so on. It was amazing. And the mornings, the early mornings, you'd, we'd get up at dawn, we probably slept in the shearers, you know, put our beds down in the shearer's shed or under the veranda or something, and then you'd have those glorious, glorious outback mornings of just gold, sky, blue skies, you know, gold sun, gold um, grass and... Oh, it, was, it was truly visually beautiful. Unfortunately, I only did it for about four years, but it was we were hawkers. And I do remember a funny experience going to, uh, to Sydney, and I can't remember why, but visiting the, um, the sh what's the shell thing called the, in Sydney, the, you know, with the big shell, the opera house, at a, some sort of a function. And someone said to me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a hawker. And they misheard me. <laughs> Nobody would talk to me. And I kind of went, oh, what have I done? And someone said, I think they thought you said you were a hooker. So, <laughs> so, that, yeah, so from then I was always very careful to say, I am a hawker. <laughs> Worth it, yeah. So um, it was very sad for me when my husband was again transferred, but it was practical too because my eldest daughter needed to go to high school and there was nothing out there. The usual behaviour was to send somebody to a boarding school somewhere. And, uh, and 
we were not very keen to do that, and this opportunity came up for him to move to North Queensland. So um, in, uh, to say goodbye to that work, to say goodbye to that community of women, to say goodbye to the, uh, the community on the, uh, on the Kimberley Research Station, and to say goodbye to my two horses was just <laughs> the worst wrench. So we moved to Townsville, settled the kids into school. So what date was this? Just oh, in the, around the 75, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, but for my poor old eldest daughter, she'd been in a little school with 300 kids in it and about 10 kids in each class. She went to a high school with thousands of kids. She got lost in there. And, um, and I was also lost at that time. Um, we found, finally found a house to live on. Oh, the moment we arrived, one of the kids developed measles, so we had to stay in a hotel room and couldn't negotiate. You couldn't interact with anybody because, you know, through the infectious period. And, um, and then we finally found a house to move into, and then we had to wait for ages and ages for the furniture to come, so we're all just sleeping on the floor, you know, that sort of thing. Very basic. Um, and I was... I was really actually what I look back now and say, I was incredibly depressed. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was unhappy about being there. I couldn't adjust to the water and the food. I'd been eating fresh um, fish straight out. I used to fish straight out of the Ord River, fresh um, brim and um, barramundi and so on. The men, I didn't catch barramundi, the men did. But, um, but uh, now all of a sudden I was eating food from the sea, seafood, which I couldn't adjust to the taste for ages, but I have now. And, um, and it, one day in the paper I read that, the, that it, was the to Whitlam, it was the Gough Whitlam time and university was suddenly free and women were flocking to university. There was an advertisement for the um, Associate Diploma in Community Welfare and, I, and, and you could enrol. And um, so I formed the opinion that I would do that. And I remember my husband saying, well, I don't think you should, but nothing must slip here. You've got to keep everything going here while you do that. Like, it was really the attitude. He was an unkind person, but that was like the attitude, you know. And so off I went to university. And so my whole welfare interest then came from that. And at the time I was there, I was in... Uh, lecturers were feminists. And so you were learning about feminism and women's place in the world and oppression and patriarchy and all of those things. And um, I did some voluntary work with youth and it was okay. And I did some voluntary work in a drop-in set of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, um, and then uh, and I was still studying then and, and then I was got connected up. I saw, actually saw a little article in the paper looking for volunteers to help set up a women's service for a church-based organisation and I made contact with them and they were just around the corner from where I lived. And so they, I, I went there as a volunteer but what became really evident is that the good works that these women were wanting to do was wonderful and they were really well motivated but the harsh realities of life really wasn't there. These were women who were regularly travelling overseas, had fairly stable lives, lived in nice houses and so on. And so this idea of working with people with, um, you know, in poverty and not 
knowing that they're not always going to be very grateful about your efforts. Whereas I did have that practical kind of basis. So um, I worked there for about three years helping set that up and working with people. And, and what you learn is amazing from your clients. And so, I mean, there was, one, there was a few shocking things that happened, like uh, that one family came with a boy of um, 15, I think he was, and then one of the women, young women in the service was about 18 and had a child of her own. And then those two ended up on the couch together to the outrage of every, you know, the outrage of everybody else. It's like, how do you deal with that? These were days when we didn't have principles or we didn't have frameworks and so on. It's like, oh my gosh, how do you deal with that? And then, um, and then the first time we got a woman who was seriously dis disturbed and paranoid and trying, uh, the only skill that I had at that time was to be reasonable with her. And she kept telling me that the TV was talking to her, but I kept trying to correct her. You learn so much, and your naivety is enormous, isn't it? But um, the Women's Centre had been set up in Townsville in 1984 with some wonderful feminist women, many of whom were from the university. And actually, um, the precursor of the actual centre were women who pledged money from their jobs to set up a sort of a hub and a place where feminist knowledge was being gathered and where people could gather for meetings. And it was that group that applied under the uh, SAP agreement to uh, have some money to set up the women's centre. We had an existing women's shelter and so the justification for the women's centre was to um, provide an, uh, for women who weren't going into the shelter but still needed help and assistance, it would be a drop-in centre for them to go to. And one of the workers from there that was employed went on maternity leave. I was asked to fill in. So I left the other job and went and filled in there. It was only for a year and I just loved it. It was a feminist collective. Uh, I loved the whole principle of the feminist collective. And I've got, and I think a lot of my patients and people say to me, you're always so calm. I think I learned that in a feminist collective because uh, there's no doubt that you would have a collective meeting which meant everybody, you know, and you had to have equal power and equal say and there was all these ground rules, consensus decision making, uh, how you had to understand how if you didn't agree, you had to say, I don't agree with this but I won't block the decision or you had to say, I don't agree with this, I want to block you know, the decision and have further discussion. Um, and so you'd have a whole agenda and sometimes the meeting time would come and go and you're still on agenda one. You know? <laughs> so that was really common at that time. But the other thing that was happening around us is because it was funded under SAP and there was, you know, funding rules and... and uh, Just explain SAP. Yes, yeah, Supported Assistance Accommodation Program. And it had three parts to it. So it had homelessness services, had... Um, domestic violence services and it had two parts to it? I can't remember. I've lost track. Yes, I've lost track of that. It was a huge big program. It was a very significant program and it was a Commonwealth and state uh, funded. It was, uh, it was a national program and um, every state put in their contribution uh, according to what they could do. It was Joby Yorkie-Peterson time still here, I think. And, um, 
and both Queensland and Tasmania were considered the poor states. And New South Wales government overmatched with the Commonwealth contribution. But the beautiful thing about, again, the beautiful thing about that for me was that because um, the, it was considered that we were the poor states, those of us who were working were often subsidised by the Commonwealth to participate in national meetings and so on. And so I got to do an awful lot of, uh, you know, consultations and meetings and working towards framing up what, you know, what does women's services look like under SAP sort of thing. So then, um, yeah, yeah, so... Um, so I ended up working for seven years in the Women's Centre and not all of that was Feminist Collective because the government, the funding body and also places like the media never ever knew who to go to and so one of the things that would happen is that the media would ring up and say, oh look, this has happened, could you do a comment? And we'd say, yep, the um, collective meeting's next month, we'll put it on the, next week, we'll put it on the agenda and we'll get back to you. By the time we figured out what we wanted to say and who was going to say it, the whole story had moved on. It didn't work like that. But also the, the department more and more wanted to know who was in charge and who was going to respond. And so we actually did have to change from a feminist collective to as flat a structure as we could be, um, but with a, with a manager and and so on. And in 1990, uh, the, in the meantime, Queensland had had the uh, Domestic Violence Task Force and funding was flowing from that. And um, I was part of a group called the Coalition on Criminal Assault in the Home, which was a whole bunch of crisis uh, workers from family court, the hospital and so on, and wealth and services. And um, they applied for some money under Beyond These Walls uh, funding. Um, and they were successful in getting a project for a year with somebody to go into the rural areas around us, our hinterland as it was called, where they, uh, to find out what people needed, what services, that was a bit of mapping really, what services that were and what did people need. And then uh, the regional DV services package of funding was available and CoCase applied for that. And they were successful in getting the Townsville Regional DV service and they um, advertised for a coordinator and I applied for the job. And uh, I was told later that there was huge concern about employing me in the job because uh, CoCase had men involved and men on the management committee, that was going to be the management committee and they, wasn't, they weren't sure that I could transition from a women's centre to a more generalist centre. But hey, guess what? I did and did very successfully. That's what many of us have known you in that role. So you started that role and how long were you in that role before you retired more recently? Well, I started the domestic violence service and 25 years later, 25. I stepped out of that aspect of the work. And, um, and so at the beginning, I just had my car, which was an old sta Holden station wagon, and I had a milk crate with all the bits of paper in it. But because I'd worked at the shelter, which I forgot to mention, and I'd worked at the women's centre, I had relationships. So I would go to the women's centre and say, can I use an office and make phone calls? I need to order a car, I need to find an office, you know, or go to the shelter and say, can I use your 
resources or whatever, you know. So that was how the place started. But anyway, we had... So I was employed as a coordinator and then I employed... Um, and the management committee was formed and I employed a... with the management, a... Um, uh, an admin worker, a court worker and a counsellor. So that's what we started with. By the time the 25 years were up, we had the office in Mount Isa, which we also were responsible for. We took that up in 1999. And we had anywhere, counting casuals, anywhere between about 19 to 25 workers across the two locations. And we also had an enormous program of taking social work students. So every year we would take third year social work students, two or three at a time sometimes, and um, then fourth year social work students. And in terms of education and learning and bringing communities on and so on, those social work students would, because we're a feminist service, they learned about feminism, they learned about responding to domestic violence, and many of them discovered it was their passion. And so as the service got more funding and as we grew, it was often those students who got the jobs because already we knew their values were right, that their understanding was right, they were, they were ready to work. They had their training with us earlier and so they were, could just you know, come into the organisation and be effective immediately. But one of the big things that we did that was different, I think, in 1995 and 96, was we set up Dovetail, the integrated approach, but also I did my university placement. My university career went on forever. Um, I did my placement at Hamilton Abuse Intervention Program, and they were running the Duluth model of work with perpetrators. And I learned, I just immersed myself in that. And because it was so new and it was such a new field, while I was there on placement, I became a doer, not just like an observer. And so I was actually running the programs. And I was finding it amazing to work with the, the New, Zealand, New, you know, New Zealand men who were using violence, but better, off, better still working in that system. And so I learned all the aspects of the system, brought the whole back whole lot back to Townsville. Unfortunately, New Zealand court system and legal systems are different than ours, and so that close integration couldn't be translated to Townsville, um, which as I was hoping that Dovetail would do. But we did run the men's programs, and so in Townsville we've run men's behaviour change programs continually since 1996, and then we did get, uh, we ran it for a long time with no funding, and then we got some funding, and, and recently we've been funded for two programs. The passion of that work and the need for that work. We can provide women with whatever safety we've got resources to do, but unless we stop the violence, which is the whole feminist work in the DV sector, is to stop men's violence, to hold them to account, to change their minds, change their behaviours, change their attitudes. And I was deeply involved in that work for all of those years that I was involved there. It's just amazing. I know there's elements, particularly in those 25 years, we haven't covered. But what you've brought us on is that journey that built up to that. And I think for those, on behalf of those currently in the field, those who are going to listen to this, it has been a privilege to listen and to hear your story. And I think. Um, for those, again, who are activists, who are feminists, it's fascinating to know um, 
the, you know, the influences in each of our lives and what brings us to certain points. And it's your journey has certainly been instrumental from where you were born to how you learnt each stage of that journey, how you embraced the community, how you worked with women, you listened, you were open. So I think there's a lot of stories that um, are very instructive for us. And of course, you've recently also been um, talked to us about um, some wisdom biscuits that workers can also gain from those experiences. So on behalf of all those who are going to hear and benefit from your story, thank you very much, Pauline, for those 35 years. Thank you. Thank you to Pauline for sharing a life well lived. Her story of personal challenges and triumphs and the relationship of these to her professional life exemplifies a woman who recognises the full humanity of women and men. Thank you, Pauline. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb and Lightning. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au.